Money will come. I, I, you know, I, it'll all come. You know, I think when you work hard, it, it just happens. And I think when you don't think about the the money piece or think about what the exit is, I, I think you're able to focus more on the the day to day. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have Mark Ainley with GC Realty on the show. Yo, how you doing, bro? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Let me just say here, and I've told other people in our circle this, that uh, I, I've always I've always loved your podcast. Like yours is like the first, when we actually got into the national scene of Narpom and all that, like yours was one of the first things I was introduced to. And when I got into podcasting last year, I, I wanted to do something different. I, I didn't want to just blend in. And, and I've always, since I started the podcasting journey, I've modeled myself after the depth you go into. So I, you're awesome at it. So I just want to pay you those compliments where everyone can hear it. Like I, 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 you've, you've helped me on my journey big time with the whole, you just take a, a, a you go another layer deeper in it, and I love that about I, your questions. I appreciate that. Thank you, man. It Don't feel, go too hard on me today though. <laughs> it, it, it feels good to be here with another professional. You've been in the saddle. How many episodes do you have deep are you on your podcast? Uh, 140, I think. We have 140 recorded. I think 127 have came out so far, I think. That's a lot of reps. And what's interesting, Mark, about the tack that you've taken, we're, we're glossing over a lot, so we're just going to just jump right in. You run a property management company. You started a podcast, but the flavor of what you did was very intentional. You didn't start a podcast for other property managers, which would be interesting, but it's not your consumer. Your consumer is the real estate investor. Your consumer is the person that owns the home that needs to be managed. And that's who you've targeted in your content. It's fairly obvious, but for whatever reason, that's lost on some folks. And I think that's really important. The other thing is that you've built some community around your podcast, which I think is really, really interesting. Obviously, that's part of my MO. I want to be in conversation. I like to be close to the consumer. It's a turn on for me. And I found it that it gives me the context, the reach and the access to make sure that what I'm doing is on point. When you think about what's made the difference in your podcast, because there's content and then there's content. You've had persistence. You're 140 episodes deep. I see that you enjoy it, which is a huge factor. In your mind, what were some of the other differentiating factors that allow have allowed you to have some pretty considerable success with your podcast as a marketing vehicle for your business? Well, I think, so one of the reasons I got into it is I, I found myself being able to help people on an individual basis. I have a, a pretty deep investor rehab like uh, background and not to mention, we've been managing properties for 15 years. So I've seen many other people mess up too. So I'm always trying to help people avoid mistakes and going into, you know, when I started this kind of sales journey a few years back, I can only do that one at a time. I can only do that, you know, maybe 60 or 70 people a month. Like, mm -hmm. it, like there's a cap to, or there's a limit to it. And I, I've always seen the podcast as a vehicle to be able to help other people not make the same mistakes or... With our guests, they're they're all experts, and no one wants to hear them get up there and say, "I'm a millionaire." Blah blah blah. No one wants to hear that crap. Mm -hmm. They want to hear all the struggles you had along the way, all the all the trips, all the uh, punches in the face, and trying to pull that out of. Uh, I pulled it out of my own story, and, mm -hmm. and that's how I. That's you know when I present to different 
local groups and stuff like that. I, I my presentations are just like everything I messed up on, <laughs> and, and that resonates with people. And I, I think that's been the differentiator is for us is just trying to drill down and, and pull out all the mistakes versus the the glory stuff because that's that's not no one cares really about that when it's all said and done. I love that you're speaking from a place of conviction and expertise. I've in my career been in places where I was I was performing. I, I learned about what I was talking about. I learned enough to be dangerous, but I wasn't speaking from firsthand experience versus talk, having the, the ability and the potential to effortly, effortlessly talk for hours about something that I've lived. It's firsthand to me. It's palpable. It's like it's in my DNA. You obviously, you mentioned broadly your background, but you've also done media before. Before you had the podcast, you actually had a, a TV show. Rewind the tape, or there was, there was an episode that you did on a TV show. Tell me that story, man. How did that come to be? Well, it was always in my pocket list, and, and I'm happy it's over because uh, I would never do it again. But, you know, they, you know, so I think you create your own luck in life, right? So me just being on bigger pockets, posting all the time. Somebody, a media director reached us out to us. They were doing a show for HGTV at the time. And they interviewed me and uh, um, Brian, uh, our, th our third partner. And the show they're going after, we were too successful for. Like they're, they're just trying to find a bunch of uh, people early on that made mistakes. So I took that as a compliment, but they liked our personality. So me and Brian were on the Zoom and we had good charisma going back and forth. And, and they, they're just trying to find out a way to work us onto one of their shows or whatever. And coincidentally, um, me, Cliff and uh, Brian, our three partners, you know, we were buying properties and we, we brought, we bought properties at the tax auctions. And that's where you go, the court stops, you bid it and you, you basically, there's no room for error. So you, you bid today, you buy tomorrow. Like it's very, very, you have to do all your diligence leading up to it. And we just in the error of like twisting a number, went and inspected the wrong property and, and bought, or we, we inspected the wrong property and bid on a different property and we won it. So it was, uh, it was uh, a, a day that, so, you know, for us, uh, anyone out there knows uh, Cliff, he, he's, he's pretty smart, man. He, he's a smart guy. Doesn't mess up. Yeah. And, doesn't uh, make, not known for mistakes. No, not at all. So that day we, 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 we wasted, uh, I think 30 or $40,000, but Cliff messed up that day. And we're like, hell yeah, dude. <laughs> Me and my other partner, Brian. Was this on the show? This, that wasn't on the show because, uh, Cliff never ended up on, uh, be on the show. But, uh, you know, it, personally before leading up to the show, the mistake that led us onto the show was something that we were excited about. Cause, uh, you know, for once it wasn't us that messed it up in the partnership, but, uh, um, either way, they found that that mistake to be like, oh, we could build on this. And uh, we went to, uh, you know, they pitched it to an, another uh, show that was going to be on CNBC. The Deed was the show that was ultimately on. And uh, it was uh, it was a cool experience. So the, the fun part about this, or the scary part about this was they sent over the agreement. And if you print it out, it would have been four inches, uh, four inches uh, thick. And you know, my immediate thing is I forward it to my attorney and I say, oh, tell us, let, let's know what we should redline. <laughs> Within like 60 seconds, like, Mark, either you're doing the show or you're not doing the show. Like they own you one way or another. So we had to make the decision that, you know, at that point, you know, we were 15 years in business and we've worked so hard to get that. And you could go on, you see these shows, they just tear people down oh, yeah. and they can destroy you. And me and, uh, me and Brian were the ones actually on the show. And, uh, you know, me and Brian made the decision of, you know, I live life a lot of times with the decision criteria of, I'll re I'll never regret doing it, but I might always regret not doing it. Mm. And that was the way we made that decision. Now, me and Brian said, all right, we're good at making people like us. So let's just take this entire directing crew. There's about 17 of them. We thought there was about five or six at that time, but let's just, this is like, 
make them like us so much that if they screw us, they'll at least feel horrible about it. <laughs> so me and Brian would come to the set every day. You know, we'd hug them, bring donuts. We got a guy at internship. We rehab somebody's kitchen. Like we, we just like did everything. We leaned in. We leaned right in on them. And by the end of the show, they, they, they uh, or throughout the whole show, they loved us. And the ultimate episode they, they did, they actually made us really look good. Like they made us look like we knew what we we're doing in the background. But the whole show was, uh, was based on uh, our growing pains as a company. You know, we bought the wrong property because, you know, mm. Mark is one of the owners is still out uh, mm. doing his due diligence on the properties instead of hiring the right person. So it was, uh, it was a great, we actually learned a whole bunch of stuff along the way um, in that journey. So it was, it was really cool. But I was always scared. The only thing I was always scared of was uh, always saying the wrong thing or them twisting your words or yeah, something like editing, that. So, yeah. oh man, I was so scared. So I really, I really, uh, I, was, I was scared, totally scared. And they actually caught us one day off. We weren't filming, but me and Brian were bickering and we still had our microphones on. So they caught us and they ended up putting that in the show um, for some drama effect. But uh, it was an experience and I'm, uh, I'm happy we, we did that. And it was pretty cool. So that was your first taste of a media experience. You obviously have kind of continued that now with the podcast. Mark, one of the things that I think is interesting about your role is that you sit in a sales function and you've been doing that for some time. Is it fair to say that that's kind of been one of the, the bigger hats that you've worn for the company as being the front man and bringing on new owners? Yeah. So I'm from the beginning, you know, as uh, when you're wearing all those different hats, you're always in sales. But when um, I got kicked out of operations just because, you know, we had to grow, we had to create some enterprise value to our company and it couldn't be Mark uh, being in the middle of all of it. So uh, they said, you go figure out the, the sales and, and the marketing piece. And at that point was create a marketing piece and and, and focus on sales. So um, that was 2018. And I actually was nervous. You know, and I hired uh, Jeremy Pound at that time to actually write a script out. Like, you know, and it was always like you just grab a phone call in between other things you're doing as, as a business owner. And if you didn't get it, it wasn't a big deal. You know, you're busy doing other things. And uh, now it's like, all right, now I got KPIs. Or I got to figure out KPIs. I got to hit numbers. I have to uh, justify spend and, mm, and all that. Mm -hmm, so mm. it became very, uh, very real. You're saying when you sat into operationalize and GoPro with that function of the business, you felt some weight around it. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. It made me, I don't know. I got really nervous really fast on it. And uh, just because that was like what I was doing all day long at that point. So it was kind of weird how you did it for 15 years. And then all of a sudden you, that was your full-time gig. And uh, I had to really learn what was the right way to go about it. Dude, I love that honesty. Mm -hmm. I feel that at times in my own business, when I step up and take some responsibility, some, some heaviness around it. But what did that do for you? I mean, because clearly you've stepped up, like you figured it out. Did In the end, was that a productive and healthy pressure? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Now, one of the things I went about early on when I sat into that role was trying to figure out some silver bullet. <laughs> of course. You know, where do I get the leads? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the I was looking for the who was going to come in. I think I even hit you up for uh, like different sources of like, who can come in and do my uh, who yes. can do my drip campaign. I, I, yes, oh, yeah, right, right, right. I'm and, sure I introduced you to Jeremy. And uh, and I I spent probably about eight nine months figuring out like who could do my drip campaign and all that stuff. And uh, ultimately, I realized that it's my business. It's my message. It's my, my market. It's, it's my avatars I'm going after. Like no one can come and do that for me. And, mm -hmm. and it took me about nine months to figure that out. But once I figured it out, it, that's where it kind of took off of when I was able to kind of put that time and put that all, all in place. So that was pretty cool. That was a really cool turning point for me in that role. And so now, when you started doing the podcast, did that create opportunity on top of a strong baseline or has that been the pipeline? What did you have going on in term on the marketing side prior to kicking off the podcast? You know, so we had a lot of, uh, I, I think we've always had because of our relationships and referrals and, and just good, you know, I've always 
been a connector, I guess, in nature with people. And so a lot of our stuff's always been more outbound than it has been inbound um, marketing. So I kept doing that. And uh, it was just really my network and finding those four or five people that, that you know, whether it be other prop. I went after other property managers in the market right away. And I put together, you know, we don't have NARPA in Chicago uh, for one reason or another, but I kind of established my own little group of 25 property managers. And, uh, you know, Chicago is such a big market that, you know, we're all in, you know, different corners and there's plenty of leads just within our own property managers. And th- that, that was a big lead source for us right away. And I think for us, you know, we always had good reviews. And I said this yesterday to somebody, I said, while I was trying to figure out that silver bullet for the drip campaigns and all that stuff, the one thing that I was obsessed with was Googling uh, my name, my partner's name, the company name, and just whatever came up on those first three pages, make sure it was perfect. Make sure I was on all those three pages, make sure our name was everywhere with the, with the reviews. And, and I just got really obsessive uh, on that. Uh, my wife thought I had an ego issue, but uh, it was really... Uh, me just making sure that anyone was going to find us and that they could find us what they're going to see, because that was, our, that was our one chance to get someone to call us. And what level of impact were you able to make on the reviews specifically? For some folks, it's like a lost cause and they're p- pessimistic and, oh man, the reviews are no good and the situation sucks and Yelp sucks and they just, they, they disengage. How much were you actually able to influence the outcomes there? Well, my, my take on reviews is if you could get out ahead of everyone else, no one will try catching you. And that was kind of my mindset went into it. We were all kind of in that 100, 200, and across all of Chicago, like in uh, 100, 200, you know, people were from, you know, anywhere from 1.5 to, to 4.5. And and uh, I'm like, all right, let's just run away with this. That way no one's gonna even wanna mess with us. Taking souls. And like uh, that's, we've been able to keep a pretty healthy lead across uh, all those different review platforms. And I, I think that's that's been a huge difference. Cause that, I think when you have, um, a lower rating, it doesn't necessarily translate to a, a less uh, quality of a company. It just might mean that's not their focus is trying to make sure those, I'm pretty obsessive, you know, you get a bad review. How can we fix it? You know, is there an opportunity that the guy's happy now to remove it? All, all that stuff. Very ethically though. I, I don't do anything on the, in the gray area. Of course, even. of course. But uh, I think there's, if you have bad reviews, I think people call up and they're looking for something wrong with you right away versus uh, um, if you already are, are sh- there's a level of, uh, authenticity when, when you have that better, big review right when you get on the phone with them, the good reviews. Mark, how do you think about the leverage that you have being in the sales seat as an owner? One of the paradigms that I talk about with my team members is that when I am acting in a sales capacity, I'm cheating. I'm doing things that my sales guy can't because I am the owner. I can use my own kind of founder voodoo to say, you know, hey, you should sign up you know me, right? You know me. You've seen me. It's going to be great. You should do it. I can talk in broad generalities. My sales guy can't can't do that. That's not a transferable skill. Do you feel like that there is a certain kind of edge and superpower and juice because of your founder status in the company when you're talking with a prospective owner? Well, I, I think I know where our weaknesses are at, and and I won't over. I'll, I'll definitely undersell or be very um, forthcoming on. Hey, listen, we're not gonna be able to do that, or that's not gonna work here. Or if we do it that way, this might happen where I'm able to really lay out where um, I know where our weaknesses are. Just candor. Yeah. So I'm able to do that, but I'm also able to uh, really push on the gas on areas I know we're good at. And I know that we won't mess up and, uh, and I know that we'll be strong on long, long term. So 
I think knowing the entire operation inside out has is, is been a huge, uh, call it superpower. So when you've been doing the marketing piece and not only are you the front man, but now people are actually able to have access to the front man if they're talking to you in a sales capacity, what does that kind of balance or inter- interplay look like as you've kind of developed some status? I, my perception is that in your local market, you've been able to build some status from your media platform. Is that, is that a fair commentary? Yeah, yeah, for sure. F- far more than uh, I was with my network TV show. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like it's taking me way further than that. So. So like, what does that look like in practice? What, what's the bomb? What does that feel like day to day? Does that just, uh, is it a larger network? I mean, how do you, let me, let me ask you a more explicit question. How do you know that it's working? You've made this investment in the podcast. It's fun. Status is great, but you can't, you know, pay your bills with status. How do you know that it's actually working? Well, I think I'm getting, so we have a whole lead source in Lee Simple uh, that's just, so we have a whole bunch of different uh, lead magnets that come through the podcast, you know, get on the REO list and all that stuff. So we have, since we started the podcast, I think we brought in about 600 or 700 leads just from that. They're all, they're, they're what we would call leads, not opportunities, but they're people I'm tripping to. And, and they eventually, I'm seeing a lot of those convert over to the actual, um, like we need management opportunity side. So I'm seeing that. And I'm also seeing a lot of people where, I'll get on the phone with them and they've already listened to the podcast, but they didn't even make the correlation yet that this is the company they inquired to. So I, I've been trying to work on bringing the two back together even because we have it branded separately, but it is the same, uh, under, all falls under the same entity. So I, I think a lot of people, I'm, I'm getting a lot of people when they make those, that connection, it's a no brainer for them to call us at that point. And what's been the impact on your personal network and getting access to people? Have, have you had the experience of being able to have a depth and a quality and a caliber of conversations with people you otherwise would not get access to as a result of having the podcast? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's I mean, I, I've been trying to get like, like Sam Zelly's from Chicago, big Billy. Like I've been trying to go after the mayor, like, like all the aldermen, like, like I go after him and like, and I'll do it in a way that could be a win-win. Like, listen, you want to promote your, yeah, your award, yeah, like yeah. let's do Give this. A platform. Or, you know, yeah. So you got an election coming up. Like those are things that uh, ultimately we're, we're diving deeper into uh, with that. And, you know, you have the different laws and that coming out of place and the, the national association of realtors and all that. And so you're able to get all those people that want to spread their message and we're the conduit for that. And that's really what we became in Chicago. So I think a lot of what we did with the podcast, you know, again, luck and timing is, you know, to have a big market like ours and not have something like that, I think we just got lucky uh, in that sense. But uh, um, because we're one of the only uh, voices out there right now, we're able to funnel all these different messages and you know like conversations about laws and all that stuff onto our platform. Who's your dream guest? Let's let's like shout them out right now to kind of bring this into existence. <laughs> um, you know, it's anybody. Uh, you know, so we had. Uh, um, uh, David Green on there from Bigger Pockets, and that was that was probably one of our biggest guests we had on there so far, and that was someone that I probably wouldn't have uh, uh, talked to otherwise. So that was a pretty cool experience to have him on there. Um, there's a couple. I'm a big history buff, and uh, there's a couple of big history guys in like a Dan Carlin, hardcore history kind of guy. Yeah, so like Chicago history specifically, where uh, you have uh, some of these guys on PBS like that are like these hardcore like history guys take you through tours of the neighborhoods. Like I have a couple corny guests like that that we call my dream guests, but I love to have the mayor on there. Like whether it be this mayor or the next, I probably have rather have the next mayor. I'm not a big fan of this this mayor, but uh, I, I think that'd be cool uh, to be able to get to that level. 
Let's talk some more about the business. Your business actually has a few more moving parts than your average PM. You guys have some maintenance, some construction. What's kind of the totality in the surface area of what you guys touch? So I, I think the whole vertical integration is uh, is the most important thing any of us uh, business owners can do. Um, keeping as much maintenance as you can in-house, doing as many these larger projects, I, I think is uh, is crucial for... You know, I think one thing that, and I'm sure you, you would agree with me, we measure everything by door count, but I think that that's, I think it's top line revenue that I think that we really got to be talking about more well, bottom line profit. But yes, no, I agree. I agree. And that's why we're part of profit coach, all that stuff. So, but uh, I think uh, figuring out how you could get more total um, revenue to be able to work on that, that night, I think is more important than the amount of doors. Yeah. So in terms of the, the, that's a fairly opinionated view that maintenance and the construction piece and the vertical integration, what are the skill sets that you bring to the table? More and more, I think about skill sets as the way to relate to doing something new rather than outcomes. If there's a skill set required in something that you're looking to do that you don't have, you better get up to or comfortable with finding someone that has that skill set. But if all you're looking at is the outcome and you're not thinking about the skill sets that are required, it's a little bit delusional. Most property management companies don't have, let's say, a construction background, obviously. And this is part of the reason that turnkey is so novel and there's so much disaster in turnkey. You have somebody that was good at one of the pieces. They knew construction or they knew just property management or they knew just the financing piece of it. And they kind of contracted out and partnered for the other two and come to find out the lack of the depth of comprehension resulted in some kind of a major meltdown along the way. When you think about the fundamental skill sets that are required for you to do this vertical integration play, what do those look like? beyond what we're familiar with in traditional property management? Well, I think it becomes then your, your who um, that you have to, to find. And I think as we grow, we try to expand out more. You have to have a guy that, that's done these rehabs. And it's, you have to find a way to be able to structure it into the business where it's profitable for it to have that person, even if they're doing it part-time, be able to still do it because maybe you don't have enough project flow to do it full-time where that person fits out in somewhere in the organization. Now, my our third partner, Brian, he runs the, the project uh, uh, side of that, but he also runs a large piece of the commercial brokerage and, and all that. So he's able to, you know, we're able to uh, partition him out on, a, on his day based on whatever it's got the volume going for the, the different uh, categories. And do you do GC work outside of your portfolio? For the call it handyman maintenance, not yet. That, that's something that we're, we're striving to get to where if anything, uh, a good a goal we have is to do third-party maintenance for other property managers. What kind of volume do you guys do on the construction side of the business? How much of a contribution is that to top line? Um, so we have uh, we have a, a, a different construction entity and all that. And it ends up being, I think about, uh, I think it was about 10% this year as far as uh, our top line. And why, why control maintenance, Mark? You know, you have folks that do maintenance markup and it feels ideal. They're skimming the cream. They figured out how to tax the vendor, find vendors that are reliable, send them enough volume that they have weight and pull and they feel like they can QA it and they don't have to do it in-house. And there is, there is this really dichotomy of the disparate environments of running a crew versus running the folks in the office. For some folks, that's a hard balance to manage these kind of competing cultures. There can be a sense of first class and second class citizens. Please make the case for in-house maintenance here. 
So we have two parts of our, our main department basically breaks down to the in-house techs, which I think we have 11 of them, and then our vendor side. Now, there's certain things for a vendor that we'll never be able to do in-house, the roofs and you know ripping up the street to go to the, and, and covering the gravel and all that stuff. So we'll never be able to do those things. So you always have some sort of vendor network we'll do, but call it 75, 80% of it, we could be having our skilled Texan. You know, we have a, a skilled plumber now, we have a, a licensed plumber now, we have a licensed HVAC. But we still have to outsource that because that guy can only do so many no heats in one day. Mm-hmm. So you have to outsource some of that. But you know, if you have the opportunity when you have a technician to be able to be at market price or under and still to make a much larger margin than if you're just going to uh, mark up on a vendor or do a 10% uh, up uh, discount or something like that. So I, I think the opportunity uh, for larger spreads is, is there when you have... Uh, when you're doing it in-house with technicians. I'm sure it is, but a lot of folks would say the juice isn't worth the greed, a little bit of spread, a lot of hassle. Surely there's got to be more. And talk to me about the QA side of things. You know, we have, uh, you know, so one thing that we were fortunate is we've we've always had technicians. So we never got to that point where we're like, oh, we're at 600 doors. Should we do in-house? Should we do like- It was always in your It was DNA. always just kind of like, I always had the, a guy on the side. Now, don't get me wrong. We started off, we paid him cash early on. And like, it, it wasn't like formal as it is today with workers' comp and all that stuff. So, but we've always had that guy that was able to just do those things at that that cheaper hourly rate versus me having to call uh, Joe in a truck or whatever. And he's going to charge me much more. Yeah. I can see it. I think that the disparate skill sets and having the context is a huge differentiator for folks that are trying to do something because it's a good business idea, but they don't understand it well. It's a bigger leap. Sometimes the thing that you want requires a level of sacrifice that you're not quite willing to provide in terms of taking your lumps and learning learning a new aspect of the business. And you just got to be honest about that. Mark, I want to hear more about what drives the passion for you in real estate holistically? I see and I sense that your interest here is beyond third-party management. There's something about real estate that's just kind of in you and really turns you on. How would you articulate what that is? You know what I what I love about real estate is there's so many different ways to make money, um, and that was that was very um, that was very the case, very much so the case early on. And you know, when we start, we open the door, we we're going to be a commercial like brokerage like that was the goal back in 2003 and uh you know we've got like one of our first listings was a luxury home and we got both sides of the deal and we sold it we're like all we're gonna do is luxury homes going forward <laughs> we never sold a luxury home since but uh you know then we got into uh you know selling investment properties and then that you know property management came from that and the, the market crashed and we had the downturn and it was all right how do we um you know let's do pr- property preservation because we keep people move in, keep, you know, at least people eating. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, wow, there's this opportunity to buy all these properties. And, you know, and we bought hundreds of properties in between 08 and uh, 18. And then it's like, oh, wow, this, uh, so there's so many different ways in real estate in general. But then I just think the property management space is just so like, again, timing, luck, all that stuff. I think we are all in the, inf- we're, we're, we're experiencing uh, the birth of a industry that is, is so immature and, and we're kind of part of developing that. And I think, you know, yes, we got our company that we're developing and growing and whatever we're going to go, wherever direction we're going with that. But we have this entire industry that we're, you know, when we're at events and conferences that we're sharing, like what we're doing, like that, that's all brand new because a lot of people haven't been there yet. So like there's an excitement about just kind of being from uh, in on the ground floor of an entire industry, which doesn't happen that often. And it's interesting we are articulating the ground floor. I guess there's constantly a rebirthing of of the industry in some ways. And I can see how 
where we're at right now, there are some inflection points and significant changes that are happening in terms of the baseline of your business. Give me some context for size and scale expressed in terms of employees, units, et cetera. Yeah. So we have uh, 1200 doors and about a million square feet of commercial, mostly industrial space. And uh, we have about 50, I think it's 54 employees and 22 of them are, are remote. And what's distinct about the types of properties that you manage? One of the things that I, I have a limited understanding of your market, but one of the things that I know is that you manage across a variety of municipalities with individual laws within the small market that you're in. Um, doing what you're doing on the marketing piece, the funnel is wide. I just have to imagine you're getting a lot of stuff thrown at you and some of it's a fit, some of it's not a fit. Talk to me about the discipline of what you guys selectively choose to manage relative to the opportunity that's coming. So right now our portfolio, those 1200 units are really broken up pretty evenly uh, between A, A, B, C, D class properties. D class being you know, like your roughest, like when you hear about someone getting shot in, in uh, Chicago, like that's the neighborhood. Um, or your A-class, your downtown you know, loop-type condo. So we're pretty spread out. Um, we actually took a step last year, and we canceled or we referred over, uh, I think it was about 8,500 units uh, in the deep, lower end stuff. Just 8,500 units? No, 85 to 100 oh, units got or it. something okay. like that. <laughs> got it. Um, to other property managers, just to kind of take some of the pressure you know, so we we figured out over time as far as A class versus D class, the amount of touches it takes, and 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 so forth. And it's it's considerably more um, as far as how many times you touch uh, a D class property versus an A class property. And we, last year we we're just trying to clean up some of the efficiencies, and you know we brought up we're bringing on new properties pretty easily, so we got rid of some of kind of the bottom of the barrel, um, kind of the G, get rid of the lowest twenty percent or ten percent every year. Um, and that's kind of the model we're, we're almost looking like last week we reviewed like, all right, is there anyone else we should, uh, remove? So we have that mindset right now with that. Now we are in a market that is good and bad. So when you're talking about laws and we have, um, all, so you have Cook County, you have Chicago, they, they have their own like laws and rules. You have 128 suburbs, which 80, 80 of, 88 of them all have their own, uh, rules and, and laws and, and structures that you put in place. So it makes it tough even for a Chicago-based company to really master all that. Um, and we've done a pretty good job with the different systems we, we use, Podio, stuff like that, tracking all that. But it makes it really tough for companies coming from outside of Chicago trying to manage from afar uh, here. So it's I, I can always explain, we kind of got a nice little moat around us in Chicago because all of these different, uh, um, you know, you call it challenges or hurdles that 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 are really tough to overcome, even if you're local. <laughs> and how, is there a fair bit of churn in your market? I mean, do you see folks come and go just in terms of operators that are cycling through the market? Um, no, I, I think what we see more is the ability for uh, companies to scale. I think in past the 250, 300 doors uh, is it, tough for them to scale because they're, they're not, they're hitting a lot of walls when at the point when all these companies have to start hiring people and, and putting things in writing and all that stuff. Now all these different restrictions on all these different cities and all these different laws. And you have, we have three different leases and all these things now become uh, hurdles or uh, just things that can't overcome easy enough. So they just kind of stick at that uh, few hundred door basis um, or they sell at that point. Um, so that, that's more what we see more. We, we don't see too many, national uh names even in our market I mean, actually a couple of them have left after uh a few years after getting beat up yeah after getting beat up so 
you talk to anyone on the West Coast, they, they don't even want to come near Chicago. <laughs> so it's good for us. And uh, and I think uh, if we ever were to sell, we'd have to find someone that would, someone would want to probably keep us on as an operator. I, I think that would be uh, if someone from out of state was going to ever uh, buy us up or something. Mark, you talked to a lot of operators. What are some of the observations you have of maybe some ways in which it's easy for operators to shoot themselves in the foot or to operate with some unnecessary limitations on the business? What are common examples of uh, unforced errors on behalf of uh, third-party managers that you see? I think manpower. Um I, for us, it was it was always an issue. You know, we never hired fast enough, and we, even up until recent years, we've never hired fast enough. And I think the um, the flow of uh, remote workers now has helped us overcome that or, or be able to move faster. But I, I think too many too many people I talk to just get to the point where they don't even have time to hire the person out because they're so slammed. I, I see that more times than not, specifically in our Chicago market. So I end up coaching a lot of those people like, or connecting with Anaquim or something like that. Just mm-hmm. uh, like, this is, this is your, this is kind of your, mostly your silver bullet here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anything else come to mind? Um, well, I, I think one thing that uh, my partners help us do is, uh, move quicker and pivot. I think with property management, I think every couple hundred doors you hit ceilings and to foresee those ceilings is one thing, but when you hit the ceiling, uh, recognizing that you hit a ceiling and, and, and pivoting, I think is the other thing that, uh, and some of that might be around people or, or process or lack of process. But I think, I think every few hundred doors you're hitting a ceiling, two or 300 doors you're in somewhat a ceiling. You got to adjust. You have to know that the business is being kind of broken down and rebuilt. There's a huge misnomer, the idea that a small business is a scaled down proportionally accurate version of a large business, like a a one eighth version of a a car model or something like that. Really, it's an an entirely different animal. It's um, it's that that lesson is not as obvious. Let's talk partnerships. You have two partners. What has worked for you guys in terms of managing conflict, staying aligned? getting clear on what other people are thinking, being able to create flexibility and structure for potentially changing ambitions and and room for allowing those ambitions to change over time. How do you manage that conversation with your partners? You know, I finished up reading uh, Hard Things About Hard Things for a second time on the way out here on on, uh, this week. And, you know, one of the things they they, they talked about partnerships and uh, one of the things that keeps partnerships flowing is you're always challenging each other. Um, if not, it just becomes mundane and, and, and kind of fizzles away if, without that lack of challenge. And I, I think the one thing that we do do is, uh, um, yeah, challenge each other, um, for, for the most part. And that, you know, I think with partners, so I've had bad partnerships. I, I'm a big believer. Let's start here. I'm a big believer in partnerships. Cause I think, um, you know, I, I'd rather have a smaller piece of a larger number and not have to worry about as much as well too. I, and I think, when you have the skill set of the different partners, I think all three of us have very different skill sets and that that's what makes us work as well too. Um, I, I think I see a lot of people get into business with their ex- exact same person. Mm, tough. Listen, yeah. Challenging. Listen, I'll tell you this, the um, um, Tom, who's my co-host on the podcast, we're the exact same person. Um, and so it's a challenge of like, you know, we get on the phone, we're like, Oh, we can do this. We do this and we do this. And it's like, I get off phone like you know I know like all right none of this stuff's gonna get done <laughs> so like uh, I, like that's a perfect example now it's lower um, stakes yeah lower yeah. stakes in that situation so it's not uh, and I, I at least see it so I'm able to uh, challenge it where I need to but with with us I think 
you know, I always, so I think for me in, a, in any partnership I'm ever in, I always want to make sure that I'm holding up my end of the bargain and I'll do more and work longer and all that just to make sure that uh, my partners never feel that I'm not uh, holding up my end of the bargain. And I think that's, there's perception that's in, in, involved sure. in that. And uh, I think a lot of people build resentment over time with oh, partnerships yeah. when it comes to someone not holding their end of the bargain or they have too much of a, uh, piece of the pie and they're not doing enough or, or at the same time, when you have, uh, as companies grow, uh, the responsibility shift or the, the, the ceilings that an individual might hit, they, they might not be able to do what the next level is. So that's where things get complicated. So, so far with our relationship, it's been awesome. Uh, our relationship started as far as buying, uh, properties. And, uh, so we, we went through the whole development and, and so it was probably even more important that we started there cause you know, we're dealing with bigger numbers mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot more money and, and trust and, and, and so forth. And then we rolled into the property management together. So, so it's one thing to have the soft skills to work through conflict. It's another thing to have a cadence or a structure to surface conflict. You guys operate off of EOS, correct? Correct. Do you guys have a same page meeting and does that occur at any ongoing date? Yes. So, um, you know, we have our ownership same page meeting. I, we go to dinner once a month is really what we, we try to do. Um, but we talk all the time during the week as well, too. You know, at, uh, you know, one partner, Cliff, he, he's pretty blunt. Like, so he, he's never a, a book you can't read for the most part. And uh, so you always know where he's coming from. And then uh, my partner, other partner, Brian, he's pretty blunt, too, just a little more emotional about it. So, um, yeah, so we're always usually on the same page and, and I'm an iguana, so I can kind of, uh, or a chameleon. Uh, so I'm always able to kind of, I think that's my skill set being in the middle of them too, that I'm able always to kind of, uh, conform to what's going on, good or bad. What other operational cadences are meaningful to you guys? What do, what do you look that you're doing like structurally that feels like it's been a, a key ingredient to your success? A lot. Um, there's a lot that, you know, I, I think we're always our hardest critic. And I think there's so much uh, we, we've done that that's so awesome um, that is building a foundation. So at 1200 doors or a million square feet of commercial space, like we have a foundation that could 10x that. Um, we have uh, the ability, you know, I, I think the technology piece has been huge for us. And as far as we've built out uh, Podio to really work around our company. And, and that's been an ongoing project. We probably put a lot of money into it. I don't know what that total number would be, but we've been working on that for about six, seven years. And uh, the funny story about the Podio piece is we built out Podio to be really intense. And we rolled out to all our employees and uh, it was always an afterthought. We did literally chase them down to check off stuff that, uh, that I know they did three days ago. It's like, finish your test. So we, we actually rolled it back to call it a glorified checklist. And then all of a sudden, you know, they started using it. And then one by one, like, well, what if we do this? Or what if we, if we click here, we'll let leasing know. And now it's more robust than ever. So it's funny, the lesson that, you know, the hard lesson we learned there was uh, uh, getting everyone's buy-in uh, going into uh, a big change like that. Is it, is it something you interact with in any way day to day, the tech? Um, the, the platform, I mean, the entire company uses on a daily basis. For me, um, you know, I don't uh, do too much of the back end side of that stuff. You, so the sales stuff that you're doing is all inside of Lead Simple. Yep. Yep. So I've built out Lead Simple like to be pretty intense. Like it's pretty, I've taken that uh, to my own version of 2.0, I guess, in there. G give me the skinny. What's the, what's the juice for somebody that has the gift of gab, for somebody that's charismatic, for somebody that feels like 
this is kind of a pain in the ass. Like I can just, I can do this stuff on my own. What's the, what's the, the case to be made for? Well, I'll tell you this. The one thing that I don't think anybody I ever see uses inside of Lead Simple is just the ability to add the video to all these, all these different uh, uh, templates. You know, you have all these templates and you could easily insert the pop on video or the YouTube video and the personalize everything. And the automations too, for the other thing I never see anybody have is when that lead comes in, it gets filtered from your website, just bam, hitting it out there with that video of you and, and uh, following up with the text a few seconds later, it's all automated. People actually think I'm doing that. <laughs> so you, you saying what, what's, what's the content of the video? Oh, it's just, um, you know, welcome to you know, Chicago's responsive property manager and, and so forth. Like, it's just like, uh, it, it's a face. So one of the best things I think about that is, you know, when I call that person later on, uh, especially if it comes off of like a lead source, like all property manager where there five or six people are calling. Mm-hmm. I refer back, like I'm the guy that sent you the video like, right, uh, right. my face. Like, so <laughs> you can, refer, it's a good referral point, but then it's just a kind of a warm, uh, lead in, uh, for, uh, when you're talking to them or when you go out to their house or, or whatnot. I think one of the b- biggest things for video for me has been, it just creates a warmer, uh, relationship. Even if it's a, f- a phone call you're doing, they know your voice uh, and they can tie that voice to a face. Um, and, you know, when you show up at their house, it's no longer a stranger because they watched mm. 73 minutes of your, mm. your videos. So I think that's, uh, it's, it's so easy to put the video inside of all these uh, drips that I, I think that's so, uh, such low hanging fruit for everybody. I'm, I'm hearing some, they ask you answer Marcus Sheridan. Oh, yeah. I'm hearing some, some never lose another customer, Joey Coleman. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, one of the things I did last year is, on that first introduction email, I have a link going to our website of our FAQs. Now, I took our FAQs and built it out to, I don't know, it's probably 50 or 60 questions that I just got sick of answering every time. So I took my my calendar called from 25 minutes down to uh, 15 minutes. And I'm able, so I'm able to pick up some time there because they've already, they've already read through most of these questions and they have most of the answers of all the basic stuff. So I think that's another thing that... Uh, um, listeners should kind of consider doing is trying to get as much information especially on those FAQs. For me personally, I just get annoyed answering the same question over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I could skip through that and get to the meat of, of uh, the conversation, what they're really, their pain points are and, and all that, I think that's a, uh, that's a game changer for me. Now, Marcus Sheridan articulates this as assignment-based selling. Put the work on the customer. Create enough transparency, clarity in an entertaining way that they consume enough information that they're further into the buying cycle. When you think about your position as both a investor and a manager, how do you think how that colors and gives you uh, sympathy or empathy from the investor's perspective. What do what do PMs who don't have a portfolio and have never been a client of a third party manager, what do you think maybe they they miss sitting on that side of the seat? Well it's not necessarily a bad thing because that's part of the reason I get kicked out of operations is because I feel too bad for the investor. You have too much empathy. Yeah, yeah, I have too much empathy. So uh, I, I think uh um I think there's there's somewhat of an advantage there, but I think understanding the uh, the, the pain points or the uh, uh, of an investor, I, I think, is so important um, for for the sales piece of it. Uh, for anyone that's in an investor market, I think understanding the whole uh, just kind of uh, the whole one one of at least investing and what the investor is looking after or what you have to explain to. So, what I spend a lot of my time doing is educating. All right, buyer, this pro forma that you're buying off of is probably not real. So I always ask to look at people's numbers or, you know, what, show me some of your numbers, what you're actually planning on this, how profitable you're looking at it to be and so forth. And I try to break down some of their expectations uh, up front just to make sure that 
because they're gonna be mad at me at the end if if their their pro forma doesn't play out. So how do you feel about the tension between fee maxing and the performance of the property? That there's there's these tensions here in the industry, and it's not a bad thing, but you know, one simple observation is that fee maxing and lowering your costs is not a long-term strategy. It's a short-term bump. It'll juice your numbers. You feel good about it. But in the long run, raising prices and offering less service, that's not a that's not gonna be a long-term strategy that has durability. How do you internally, I mean, you hear all the chatter about fee maxing revenue optimization, and obviously this is something we promote and we think is meaningful, but how do you think about that tension? Well, I think there's uh, fee maxing and there's value adding. Um, so I think there's a lot that we do or anyone can do that truly adds value. Uh, you know, for us, for example, in Chicago market, like property tax is a big issue in our in our, in our in our state in general and in our county. So being able to add some sort of service, which we charge for to basically facilitate the the contesting of the property taxes, like that's adding value. Um, part of that even starts with just explaining that you need to contest your taxes if you're an investor here in Chicago. So um, I, I think there's a lot of add value um, scenarios versus the fee maxing. And then I think on the fee maxing side, I think um, the ability to get more from on the resident side uh, is is the thing that we've focused on a lot as well too. So you're not necessarily going after your client and, and hurting their pro forma. You could, you could. I, I think a lot of these markets where they have the tenant side of fees, they're they're not really reaching the capacity what they could for that side. Uh, what do you think the the durability of fees are on that side? What's the what's the regulatory environment like? In your market, do you have, do you feel like you have as much leeway with fees on that side as you know somewhere in the south where there's uh, it's kind of a free fall? Yeah, for us we're pretty free, and that said, there's not too much. Uh, you know, our big thing is disclosure in uh, Chicago. As far as if you're going to charge a fee, you have to disclose what it's for. Um, and there's actually a, a page in our lease template that it's just a disclosure of fees. So um, the just be able to put it on there and be able to justify it, um, whether it be the future lease uh, lease renewal fee or the the move in fee or, or whatnot. I, I think um, we have pretty good opportunity to do that. What's your commentary on the role of education and networking in the industry, and what has your own journey been like in in improving your own IQ through your own investments in education? So are you asking as far as what's available like in for a small business operator looking to get better? Well, I'll tell you this, what we have today out there versus what we had 10 years ago. I mean, it's, it's night and day. Um, I, I limped through a lot and, and trial and error and, and, uh, did messed up a lot and paid for it early on. And I, I think what's out there today, you know, for anyone wanting to learn on the investment side or learn on the property management side, it's, I mean, it just takes, it's out there. It, it's it's so cool that it's out there. I always tell people that are getting in the business or a hundred doors into like you guys have such an advantage, a leg up. Like you should be able to take my my journey and, and cut it into a, a third and get to where we're at. Just because it's all out there, you got to go find it and you have to uh, actually take the time to to use it. But uh, it's out there. Mark, you and I hiked the Grand Canyon <laughs> last year, and we had a hell of an adventure doing that. What was that experience like for you? What were your takeaways from that? Hey. You know, one of the takeaways I took from that was, yes, we hiked 26 miles uh, across the Grand Canyon and back. But I think one of the, the the better parts of that entire journey was the training for it. I really, really enjoyed, you know, the 90 days I, I was uh, doing everything leading up to it. One of my goals of the training was to be so prepared 
that I could at least enjoy the moment. I didn't want to be dying at the bottom of the canyon sure. and thinking, I wish I would have done this a little more. I wish I would have walked extra 10 miles that last week. Like, that was me. That was the experience I was all right, all right. So I wanted to choose. <laughs> you were wiser than me. I wanted to choose. You know, so that second day we came back, um, I was with a property manager out in Northern California and uh, yeah, me and him laid around at rocks looking up at, you know, the, the we're, we're literally looking at rocks saying, oh, that looks like that. You know, we really enjoyed the moment. So it, it was something. So for me, I've never been outside so much like that, like in you know a twenty four hour period, like I don't know, you, you don't, you just don't go. I, I've never really done that, so that was a whole another kind of first for me as well too. I never been to the Grand Canyon, never done anything like that. So uh, talking to Ben Sensabaum uh, because of that experience, I want to find something else to do that's equivalent to be able to train, prepare for. So it was really, even though we did it for two days, it was really call it a, a three and a half month journey. Another goal, another benchmark, something to reach for. When you think about your own journey and the metaphor that that represents for entrepreneurship for you, what goals or aspirations do you have that you know the pursuit of will can continue to keep you at the edge of your human capability? Uh, See, so that's tough because I probably don't have the answer that you would think I would have. Um, I think what really gets me out of bed is just be able to do more with what we have and continue to grow and build on it. I, I think the day that we stop growing or if we say, you know, let's just settle here, like that's where I'm going to I'll, I'll check it off sooner, sooner after that. The, as far as where it'll go, you know, part of, for me, part of the journey is not knowing where it's going to go. So what I'm contributing on a daily basis and the change we make or how we try to better, whether it be myself or the business, like that, that's, 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 that's the creating your own luck part. And uh, I, I don't necessarily even have an end game in mind, I guess, when it comes to all that. So I know that's probably not a traditional answer, but it's everything that I'm doing on a daily basis and these little tweaks and these changes and helping other people and all that. that that's what gets me excited. You're staying basis. in the dojo. Yeah. That's what it is. It's that constant discipline. It's the journey, not, yes. the, not the reward or destination. That's familiar advice. So it makes sense to me. Money will come. I, I, you know, It'll all come. I think when you work hard, it just happens. And I think... When you don't think about the the money piece or think about what the exit is, I think you're able to focus more on the the day to day. So, what does success look like to you? If you think about being at the end of your career and the commentary, the sense, the vibe, the reflection that people have on Mark Ainley, how, how he showed up in his professional career, what would some commentary um, be that you would feel like would be a job well done for you? What does success look like at the end? Well, so going back on what we were talking about earlier, this is such a young industry. It's, it's, there's, you know, we're in a time where, uh, you know, automation and technology, things, every industry is changing, right? And, and I think we have the ability to change this industry for the good and really help people. And I, I think there's a lot of, between the education piece, between the uh, uh, quality property management, I, I think we just have the ability to change uh, the industry and, and, and help so many people. And, and I think if we're going to look back, um, if we're going to in the future look back and what we did is, if anything, help change industry to just be uh, a, a better industry. Oh, man, let's end it there. That's a great <laughs> reflection. I'm excited to stand with you in that contribution, brother. All right. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's been awesome. Until next time. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. 
I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.